Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So two cows are standing in a field, and one says to the other, so how about that mad cow disease? Pretty scary stuff, huh? To which the other replies, terrifying. But what do I care? I'm a helicopter. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, a one-hour audio atlas of everything amazing in culture this week. You just got a joke from author Jade Chang. That'll help break the ice. Her much-anticipated novel, The Wangs vs. the World, is out this week. Later, we'll speak with late-night host Seth Meyers about his show, The Election, and not about how Saturday Night Live is made. Definitely not. No. Also coming up, pretend talk show host Eric Andre, Mm. author Phoebe Robinson, and New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd with etiquette advice. But first, a party starts with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Golf legend Arnold Palmer is dead at the age of 87. The Senate overrode President Obama's veto of a bill that would let families of 9-11 victims sue Saudi Arabia. I want to welcome you to the first presidential debate. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with Amy Choi. She is co-host of one of our favorite podcasts, The Mashup Americans, a show about race, culture, and identity. Amy, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? Well, you know, especially now, it's the fall, and you walk into any store, and it's just like wall-to-wall cans of pumpkin. Yes, it's peak pumpkin season. Hard to avoid. Turns out it's not actually pumpkin. What? That seems illegal. I know. Did you hear that silence that just (laughs) descended right now? It's not pumpkin. Pumpkin is kind of stringy. It's kind of gross. Not that sweet. So what is actually in the cans labeled 100% pumpkin is a combo of butternut squash, golden delicious squash, Hubbard Squash? How can you call that 100% pumpkin? That's like saying the can of rice is 100% cream. Can of rice? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I've never something. seen canned rice. But... I'm so flustered by this information, I can't even identify correctly what container rice comes in. But I get Rico's point. This is a, this is crazy. These are imposter gourds in the Well, in this... that's strong language. But so I... is 100% pumpkin. <laughs> yeah, come on now. That's true. There's no wiggle room in 100%. Seriously. Big pumpkin is a lie. <laughs> we could say it's all the USDA's fault because they don't really distinguish between gourds. Wow. You know, I, maybe pumpkin's just that umbrella it's, a, it's the generic. The Kleenex mm-hmm. of vegetables. Mm. What else is there? The Q-tip of vegetables? <laughs> this is horrible, though. So what else? What will we learn next about holiday food? Like Cadbury eggs? Not eggs. Cadbury eggs. Is you're going to come tell us next time? Maybe. Yeah, let's just wrap this up before all our dreams are dashed. <laughs> Amy Choi, thank you so much for the small talk. And mm. now, time for a 100% authentic cocktail. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, and then we give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a jacuzzi full of booze. Sounds very bad for the skin. You know, at that point, who cares, really? I guess. First, the history. (laughs) On October 14th, 2003, one of the most infamous errors in baseball history happened. And it was made by the fans. Mm. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. For Chicago Cubs fans, it was supposed to be the best day ever. For a fan named Steve Bartman, it turned out to be the worst. That day at Wrigley Field, the Cubs were hosting the Florida Marlins in Game 6 of the National League playoffs. By the eighth inning, they were ahead three-zip, just five more outs, and the Cubs would win their first pennant in 58 years. The Marlins' Luis Castillo hit a foul ball. It sailed toward Cubs outfielder Moises Alou, 
he went to catch it. Reaching into the stands. When Steve Bartman, watching from the stands, reached out to catch the ball himself and knocked it away. What might have been an out stayed a foul. Suddenly, the Cubs unraveled. They gave up eight runs and lost the game. But instead of blaming the team, the crowd turned on Bartman. They hurled insults and garbage at him until security had to usher him away. Cop cars surrounded his home to protect his family while he went into hiding for days. The governor joked about putting him in the witness relocation program. The Cubs went on to lose the playoffs, but they handled the Bartman situation like champs. Players told the public not to blame him for their mistakes, and the team released a statement saying he'd only done, quote, what every fan who comes to a ballpark tries to do. Just last year, Chicago Tribune columnist John Cass suggested an official Steve Bartman Apology Day, wherein fans would gather at Wrigley Field and shout in unison, Steve, please forgive us. As for Bartman, he is said to remain a Cubs fan, though you'll never hear him say so himself. Since releasing a statement back in 03, he's avoided all media. He doesn't grant interviews, he's never made a buck from his fame, and he never returned to Wrigley Field. The Cubs have now gone 70 years without winning a pennant. So that's the history lesson. Now it's time for a drink to go along with it. The people of Chicago are going to need a drink. I'm joined by Anna Marie Segoy. She is the cocktail guru at The Drifter in Chicago. Anna Marie, what cocktail did that story inspire you to make? Well, I wanted to come up with something that was very um, hateful. Because if I just went for (laughs) baseball, that could apply to anything, right? But what's special about this story so much hate, right? For a team that doesn't even really win, you know? It just shows that loyalty right there. It's ugly. I, I'll give you that. I never thought of a hateful cocktail. <laughs> well, I hadn't either until today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's in your hateful drink? Okay, so I started with um, Chicago's most famous spirit here. It's called Malort. Malort is a type of Swedish schnapps. Okay. Very bitter, very disgusting to a lot of people, but it's uh, very beloved here. So what else? Mezcal, which is mm. very polarizing as well. People love it or hate it. I personally love mm-hmm. it, but mm-hmm. very smoky, very layered and complex. And most people, uh, it makes them want to puke. So mm-hmm. I had to include that one as well. <laughs> uh-huh. um, then I wanted to make it kind of mojito style, which everybody loves mojitos. However, you know who doesn't love them? bartenders. Oh, yeah, because they take so long to make. They do. And any good bartender will never complain about that, but secretly. Oh, we're getting the real stuff here. I like it. (laughs) So uh, adding a little citrus to make it delicious and then a spritz of scotch on top. It has that really nice leathery, smoky flavors that, you know, I think of when I think of a baseball or uh, or a baseball mitt. And what are you calling this hateful drink? (laughs) I am calling it Latin, which means the hate in uh, French, which is another kind of reviled culture (laughs) here in America. Although I gotta say, I love them. And we should note the Cubs are actually playing well this year. Uh-huh. They've already clinched a playoff spot. And that sound you're hearing now, ladies and gentlemen, is every Cubs fan frantically seeking out and knocking upon nearby pieces of wood. With their heads. <laughs> uh, and if you are a Cubs fan and you need to calm your nerves, the recipe for that drink is on our website. Mm. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. So we made some small talk, had a drink. 
Now it's time for music. And here with a party playlist is rising British music star Jack Garrett. His mix of electronica, pop, and soul won him the BBC's Sound of 2016 poll and a Brit's Critics' Choice Award. To put things in context, the last folks to do that were Sam Smith and Adele. Jack's debut album is called Phase. Here he is to introduce himself and some old school tunes. Hey, my name is Jack Garrett. I'm a producer and songwriter from the UK. Usually when my mum and dad had dinner parties, I was the one annoying everyone and uh, trying to be a part of the adult conversation and the fun. That was definitely me. (laughs) This is my dinner party soundtrack. Trying to think of songs for this, it's difficult because there's so many different kind of dinner party routes you could go down. But I think I'm going to go with the opening track of Stevie Wonder's album, uh, Hotter Than July. Uh, It's called As If You Read My Mind. The chorus is unbelievably catchy, but the song doesn't follow an obvious structure. Like the way that it's been composed is genius. It's it's extravagant and kind of out there. You hear these incredible sounds and uh, and then you find out that he was playing all of them. <laughs> you know, the, those seven different drum parts that you can hear in the background. It's all him just layered over each other and doing it himself. And to hear someone doing it in the way that he was, where it was challenging and fun and interesting, um, you know, it, it, it's something I still learn from today. So I feel like the next best song to go to is uh, Peg by Steely Dan. The song I love so much. I seen your picture. Your name is lots above it. It's such a life-affirming piece of music. It feels so effortlessly happy. The thing I love about Steely Dan, this is something my dad, I remember, really drove home uh, for me when I was a kid. He would always sit there and go, now you won't get this because you're too young, but trust me, when you grow up, you will appreciate the level of artistry in this music. They would change the musicians for every song because the song was asking for something different. So the band constantly changed. The only people who were there the whole time were the original two. You know, one of the people they brought in and they've worked with a few times is incredible vocalist Michael McDonald. But they just asked him to do backing vocals for a track. And it honestly is one of the finest backing vocal performances I've ever heard in my entire life. I feel like this is a good time, you know, after the meal is finished to kind of just start winding down with something that's a little bit more bare. I I think I'd go for Something Fine by Jackson Brown, but I'd take it from his acoustic volume series. You can feel the audience being a part of this recording in their silence. It's him and guitar, and it's a song about giving yourself wholeheartedly to another person. The papers lie helplessly in a pile outside the door I tried and tried But I just can't remember what they're for 
there's an introduction where he explains the story behind the song and he talks about how he was staying in this ridiculous castle in England somewhere and there was one other person staying there and it was this woman and they ended up having this very passionate affair over the few months that they were sharing this place and um, that's where this song came from. California shaking like an angry child will Who has asked for love and is unanswered still It's poetry. Just summing up an entire state and comparing it to a spoiled child that wants love. Like, the beautiful thing about Jackson Brown is you could take his lyrics away from his music and they would still leave you feeling so desperately lost. (laughs) If I was forced to choose one of my own songs, just in case I hadn't made the evening about myself enough, uh, (laughs) I'd probably go with the final track on the album, which is a track called My House Is Your Home. It's the only song on the album where I'm, I'm not doing a thousand things at once and I just sit down at a piano and, and play a love song. I'm not sure why the music I've chosen for this is kind of analogy feeling. I mean, if you look at the date of a lot of the tracks as well, apart from mine, a lot of it would have been recorded on tape. Literally, you know, analog. And um, maybe I have a yearning for the romanticism of that kind of era of music. And you can find redemption a dinner party soundtrack from Jack Garrett. His latest album is called Phase. He's on tour now. All right, coming up, Rico eats Indonesian food in Amsterdam. How did I not get that assignment? I'm sorry. Author Phoebe Robinson shares a story, and late-night host Seth Meyers tells us about his hobby. I like watching outdoors people from up high. It's a little creepy when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd talks about the election and answers your etiquette questions. Plus, we hear from comedian Eric Andre. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's Seth Meyers. He spent a decade at Saturday Night Live, eventually becoming that show's head writer and the anchor of its satirical news segment Weekend Update. Then a couple years ago, he left to take the helm at Late Night on NBC, a spot made famous by David Letterman. He's also executive producer of the comedy series Documentary Now, a satirical send-up of classic docs starring his former colleagues Fred Armisen and Bill Hader. Mm. When I met with Seth at his office in 30 Rockefeller Center, I asked what he thinks his show's role is in a world full of talk shows. It's hard to speak to what the role of the late night host is. I think the fact that there are more of us now than there were in the past speaks to the fact that it's still a medium that people enjoy. You don't end up with more of something if it is a dead art. So what is your favorite part of your show? My favorite part of our show is that we do it every day. Hmm. That luxury of volume has been the greatest gift of doing the show just because you learn so much faster than I did at my previous job, which was 20 times a year, once a week. Yeah, and you can take more risks because there's another shot the next day. Yeah, you know, one of the nice things is realizing it's all a bit temporary when you do this show. It's a little bit disposable. If a joke doesn't work, if you kind of have a bumpy monologue, you're going to have so many more monologues. It's... 
I learned about six months in that I had no memory of anything that had gone wrong, which oh. then made me realize when something goes wrong, there's no real reason to obsess over it because I've learned from my own experience that I won't even remember it. How do you prepare for your interviews? And by way of example, if uh, you're preparing to interview Seth Meyers, what would you have, what would you have done as background? Well, I, you know, I want to give credit where credit's due. We have not only incredible segment producers, but working for them, we have incredible researchers who are... They're sort of looking at all their recent appearances, making sure I'm not asking questions they haven't been asked before. You know, what I I like to have some version of a plan going into an sure. interview, but I like to be able to abandon it pretty quickly based on the guest. So the second part of that question was, if you're interviewing yourself, yeah, what do you think is interesting right now? About me? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you'd ask me about what I think about the election, mm-hmm. but then you'd also dig a little deeper and say, oh, he just had his first kid. That kid's six months mm-hmm. old. Maybe he probably has some good stories about that. Uh, those, I think, would, I guess, be to some degree what would be worth asking me about. All right. So I'll, t- I'll take the bait on the election lead, gotcha. which is you are the only person on television, I think, that is being actively attacked by one of the candidates, right? Yeah. I, I think... I think Donald Trump has probably said some... I feel like he maybe slammed John Oliver a little bit, too. But he tweeted you in particular because you, at the White House correspondent a couple years ago, really raked him over the coals. We have history. We have beef. (laughs) Donald Trump has been saying that he will run for president as a Republican, which is surprising since I just assumed he was running as a joke. Donald Trump often appears on Fox, which is ironic, because a fox often appears on Donald Trump's head. You are married, you have a child, and this person might become the leader of our country. I know. I mean, are any extra measures going to be taken at the Myers household? If uh... well, Yeah, I guess Russian hackers should be what we're worried about. <laughs> has has your iPhone been acting weird? Or I been... mean, you know, the good news is when you are living the life I have now, pretty much the only photos you could hack off my phone are of my newborn. <laughs> yeah. So if you're into that sort of thing, hack away. All right. Uh, so before this weekend update, head, yeah. head writer at Saturday Night Live. A lot of people leave Saturday Night Live. A lot of them move to L.A. Uh-huh. They make some movies. Yeah. They do some TV. You and Jimmy Fallon and others, you're still in New York. You're, yeah. you're grinding daily. Does this suit your personality more? Is there oh, any yeah. anxiety about... I mean, look, more important than my personality, which I'll get to, it absolutely suits my skill set. Yeah. You know, and I think when I... One of the benefits of SNL is you work with the people that you see them. You see someone like Kristen Wiig or Bill Hader, and you say, oh, they're going to be in movies... And I'm not going to be. And that's okay because they're just better at that mm-hmm. thing. Whereas I do think they would probably have said this about me. Yeah. Oh, if there's any destination for him, it should be a show like this. Gotcha. But personality-wise, yeah, I like New York a lot more. I have a very East Coast mentality. And I like to – I don't have time for meetings. I think LA <laughs> is a lot of meetings. And we don't really and traveling have – traveling between meetings. Yeah. I yeah. mean, look, every now and then I find time for an NPR <laughs> podcast. But I don't have – we don't have generals. We don't have yeah. – you know, we're, we never sort of are whiteboarding or, or blue-skying. Yeah. Like, we're just, we're just grinding it out. And I also heard you say – you are talking about how much you like the indoors – Oh, like you're, so much. you're an indoorsman, yeah, as opposed to an outdoorsman. And again, we're in my office right now. This is a perfect indoors office, and it's a nice view. I can see yeah. when uh, soon the ice skating rink will be there, and I'll be able to watch people enjoy that's the outdoors. Right. That's right, from the safety of your laptop, yeah. uh, from on high. <laughs> I like to enjoy 
watching outdoors people from up high. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this is a perfect time to ask. We have two standard questions on our show. Okay, great. And the first question is, uh, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? It's less now. But I think everyone who works at SNL tires of how does the week work? The mechanics of SNL. The mechanics of yeah, SNL. Sure. I don't blame anybody for asking. Sure. But I feel as though that, of the answers in my life that I've given, mm-hmm. that's the one I've given the most. Yeah. And now there's that problem when you get asked an interesting question a bunch of times, which is you then start abbreviating the answer because you're sure. worried they're bored. But now I've, I feel like I've taken all the light out of the answer. Yeah. I just read this fantastic interview with Paul McCartney and made me realize, oh, of course he has it worse than anybody. Yeah. Which is he was saying, I wish at this point I had a second story about how I met John Lennon. That's But funny. I don't. Yeah. So it seems as though I can't believe how many times I've told this boring story. Sure. But it's the only story I have. That You just succeeded, though, by giving us that Paul McCartney anecdote. You grafted on a there clever way to talk about right, it. So the meta path is yours to Perfect. take. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, our second question is, it's a request and it's kind of the opposite, which is tell us something we don't know. And this is something, it can either be something personal that you haven't shared in interviews, or it can be an interesting piece of trivia in the world. Oh, well, I don't know. I feel I'm pretty happy about the things I haven't told. <laughs> you know, but you're a host and you understand the desire to have something different than another show. Sure. So you got to give me the goods here, something. I thought and wanted to be a much better athlete than I was. Hmm. And even though at every level until high school, the results would have told you I should not be playing baseball. I tried out for my high school baseball team. Yeah. And I remember everyone got up to the plate and got 20 pitches to sort of do what you could with. And I only made contact with one of the 20, which I fouled into the parking lot and (laughs) broke the windshield of my dad's car, which I'd driven there. (laughs) Well, thank goodness that you did make the baseball team because it all worked out. And I'm, you know, I'm holding out hope. Seth Myers, funny writer, bad baseball player. Oh, no. You can catch him on Late Night, Mondays through Thursdays on NBC. Plus, check out the show he produces for IFC. It's called Documentary Now. And folks, if hearing from a real talk show host isn't your cup of tea, stick around. Later in the show, fake talk show host Eric Andre stops by to explain why bad interviews are great. Got that? to eavesdrop. Comedian Phoebe Robinson hosts the podcast So Many White Guys and Two Dope Queens alongside Daily Show alum Jessica Williams. Now she's released her first book, You Can't Touch My Hair, a mix of memoir and culture commentary. Today we overhear an excerpt. As someone who attended a private Catholic prep school, followed by a New York City liberal arts college, and now works in TV and film, being the black friend is something I'm all too familiar with. To be fair, the 2013 U.S. Census confirms that Black people comprise only 14.2% of the American population. So knowing that, I don't expect to be surrounded by folks who look like me. However, I think it's well within reason to not be constantly reminded that I'm the only of my kind or, and this is far worse, be made to feel I'm someone's friend merely to fill a quota or to confirm that they are not racist. Well, my friends, this is a new dawn, and I'm feeling good because I figured out how to avoid being the black friend. And I'm sharing my wisdom with you, so pay attention. Number one, don't be black. 
Ha 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 ha. LOL LOL. JK Rowling. Number two, in times of need, say, Don't you legend of bagger vance me. If you're only called upon when your friend is down the dumps or needs comic relief, then you, my friend, are like Will Smith's character in Legend of Bagger Vance. Nothing but a mystical and ageless 1930s caddy, a.k.a. Magical Negro, who appears out of nowhere to help a down-and-out golfer find his swing again and reunite with an ex-girlfriend. And then he disappears and materializes decades later to help another white person with golf. Furthermore, did Bagger Vance not realize that he was a magical, mystical black dude who has the ability to time jump? When you are a magical, mystical black dude who has the ability to time jump, you have one job. Make life better for black people in big and small ways. That's it. That's all you gotta do. You could have skipped to the 50s and been the hype man for Rosa Parks when she refused to give up her seat on the bus. You could have gone to the 60s and put some gold bond foot powder in MLK's wingtips to help keep them smelling fresh while he was marching. The options are practically endless, Vance. Yet you were like, I'm going to be straight up chilling in the racist 1930s so I can help this white dude win a golf tournament. This is why we can't have nice things. Number three, do not start any friendships with white people during the summer months. Now, this may seem extreme, but hear me out. Inevitably, at some point during the summer, a white person will say to you, ha ha, I'm blacker than you, after she gets a tan and presses her arm against yours like she's doing a paint swatch comparison at Home Depot. This is not a good way to begin a friendship. Number four, do not take on the role of arbiter of cool. Don't get me wrong. At first, it'll feel awesome that people consider you judge and jury on what's dope or not. But that gets old real quick, right around the time a white friend will ask you to co-sign their coolness because they know the theme song to a 90s black sitcom. Despite your pleas, they will demonstrate by going mo to the, e to the. Stop them right there. Mo to the, e to the doesn't count because the Moesha theme song is mostly just those six words on the repeat. Tell that person to get back to you when they have the 227 theme song, Down Pat. There's no place like home. With your family around you, you're never alone. Phoebe Robinson. There's much more advice where that came from in her new book, You Can't Touch My Hair. That excerpt came courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. It was edited for time. And you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, you may have heard tell I'm a fan of the Netherlands. Yeah, you know? I've only heard that from you constantly, <laughs> yeah. all the time. I try to travel to Amsterdam every year, so I do love it. And when I do, I always make a point to eat an unholy amount of Indonesian food. And I assume this makes sense somehow. It does. And uh, when I was there a few weeks back, I invited along a woman named Vicki Hampton to explain why she is a British food journalist living in Amsterdam. She runs the blog Amsterdam Foodie. Before heading into a restaurant for an Indonesian feast, we talked a little about why this Southeast Asian cuisine is a Dutch staple. Well, um, Indonesia was actually a colony of the Netherlands for about 150 years between 1800 and the middle of last century. So the Dutch were in Indonesia for a long time and, uh, and consequently a lot of Indonesian people have moved to the Netherlands. How would you characterize this food for those who 
don't know it. Well, it involves generally a lot of spice, a lot of chilies, um, but also kind of uh, warm spices. Peanuts feature very heavily, so in salads, but also in the sauces. Um, coconut as well is popular. I mean, all the things that you think of kind of tropical climates. And when you say spicy, you're not kidding around. No, we're not messing around. Usually when, when they serve Indonesian food, they sort of start at the milder end and then you work your way up. But I've seen many a person in tears. Also, I would, I would say it's in a way a bridge between Indian cuisine and the further East Asian cuisines, if that seems accurate to you. There's like a little bit of Chinese in it. There's a little bit of Indian in it. Yeah, I guess that's kind of fair. I mean, I would say it's maybe a little closer closer to Malaysian cuisine in terms of flavor. Similar, similarly spicy, and they also use uh, tropical fruits and coconut and peanuts and that kind of thing. What I'm going to order inside, which I always do when I come to the Netherlands, is something called a rice tafel. Tell us what it is. Yes. So rice tafel literally translates as rice table. And it's essentially lots of different dishes, like small, almost tapas-sized dishes that you share as a group served with rice. Um, and as we mentioned before, they kind of range from mild to extremely spicy. And it's entirely an invention by the Dutch. The Indonesians do not actually eat this concept. I mean, they eat all the dishes individually, but not kind of all together in this way. And why? where does that come from? I actually didn't realize that. I thought that this was an Indonesian thing, a rice tafel, but the Dutch made it up for what reason? I think it stems from the colonial times when the Dutch wanted to show how rich and abundant their produce was and, and how much they could afford, and they wanted to show off to their friends. They're like, check out all my exotic foods that we just got from one of our colonies. Exactly. Exactly. So they they would put like 20 or 30 dishes on the table, whereas, you know, in Indonesia itself, people probably eat like two or three. And for some reason, this caught on. And for some reason, it's like a, <laughs> a whole bunch of delicious stuff all at once. Well, that, yes. And you can't say no to that, can you? Definitely not. So let's go inside. We're outside a restaurant called Jun in the west side of Amsterdam. I also have uh, my friend Diana is going to meet us here. She is uh, part Indonesian and maybe she can add a little something to the conversation. Sounds fantastic. All right, so our food is arriving. What do we have here? This is chicken, red chicken, this is rendang. Rendang, this is one of the kind of main dishes in, of the cuisine. Yes, there's beef. Okay. And this one is the cucumber salad. Cucumber salad and? It's the sayur tumis. Which is? Uh, vegetables. <laughs> that I understand. Oh, and more stuff is coming out. Enjoy. Thank you. All right, so Diana, so we've got now five dishes in front of us. I think we've got, ah, here comes a sixth. That's the satay, uh, skewered chicken strips. But Diana, I wanted to ask you, the, one of the main dishes of the cuisine is this rendang. Is that how it's pronounced? Mm-hmm. I never make it because it takes a day to make it. The beef has to fall apart. It has all these herbs in it, and it's just simmering for a day, so it really gets into the meat. I have no patience for this, to make this, but that's why I go out and eat it. It's like a spicy beef stew. And what is this? She said red chicken, the version of the curry chicken. It almost looks like an Indian curry, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't taste that way. And I really, I'm going to start with some rendang. I've had this many times before, but it's always a little different from place to place, as with any cuisine. Mmm. That is good. Ideally, it should be kind of fall off the bone tender, yes? Yes, indeed. What should I do next? See, I was so busy talking to you guys and thinking about what I was going to say that I didn't see what order of spiciness this was laid out. What would you say is the most likely thing to burn my face off? Well, I would say this red chicken curry that's sitting in front of me, but Indonesian restaurants in Amsterdam are well known for kind of 
toning down their spice level, especially for foreigners. So you may find that you're not going to get quite the head-blowing-off experience that you've been anticipating. The fact that I'm wearing a T-shirt that has an English word on the front of it, they may have been like, let's just give that guy a break. And doing a radio show in English <laughs> with a bunch of people at your table. But <laughs> Diana, you have actually a story that I really love about spicy foods. Yeah. When I was 16, I had my first boyfriend. He was from an Indonesian family. His father, who was Dutch, told me this story about the first time he went to his girlfriend's house, his Indonesian in-laws, to have dinner. His mother-in-law, Indonesian woman, she made an extremely spicy dish just to test him to see, if, are you spicy enough or man enough to hang out with my daughter? And he told me, I don't know if this is true, but he told me that his taste buds that night got burned. And he can handle spice. He can handle spice anything after that night. But so he got, his taste buds got numbed so that now nothing can harm him. No. And Brendan, it turns out the spice level at Jun mm. had been tempered for my Western palate. That is disappointing. So no tape of me gasping in agony. Bummer. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Maybe next time. I hope so. Folks, coming up, New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd describes what happens when Donald Trump calls you crazy when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, comedian Eric Andre revels in the most awkward interviews ever. Not ours. But first, during this political season especially, it's time we have an etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to solve all your problems this week is Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd. She is known for her wit, her merging of popular and political culture, and her equal opportunity skewering of politicians' personalities. She got her start in the late 70s as a sports columnist for the Washington Star and went on to become a reporter at the Times. Her long history covering and speaking with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have culminated in her new best-selling book, The Year of Voting Dangerously, The Derangement of American Politics. It's a collection of her columns about the candidates, as well as musings about the Bush dynasty and more. And Maureen, it is an honor to have you. Thanks, Rico. That's a lot. It is. (laughs) Thank you, Brendan. (laughs) So you write of this moment in history. We're going to start with a quote from your book. Uh, We are in one of those rare unharmonic convergences when reality is more absurd than satire. Uh, Now, you've covered nine presidential elections, so you've seen a lot of absurd things go down. What was the moment in this one where you were shaking your head, like, I cannot believe this is happening? Well, it reminds me of, you know, the Stefan skit on SNL when he (laughs) reviews nightclubs. Yeah, the, the club kid. Yes. And, you know, I keep thinking, okay. This election has everything. (laughs) It has Russian hackers, white supremacists, small hands, penis taunts, Kardashian-like Twitter feuds, dueling federal investigations, Peppy the Frog. (laughs) That's a lot of movies you could make out of this election thus far. We need Bill Hader back. So, So if reality is this heightened and absurd, where does that leave you? A calmness who usually is the one kind of using caricature and satire to kind of give us insight into the political world. It's very much like when Tom Wolfe wrote Bonfire of the Vanities and Mm. the actual events in real life in New York were getting ahead of him and Mm. he was trying to keep up. That's how I feel. Um, I wrote a satire about what was going to happen when 
Donald Trump had his first meeting in Washington with Paul Ryan and the Republican Party. It's like some kind of uh, production of Taming of the Shrew. (laughs) They thought they were going to (laughs) bring Donald Trump to Washington and tame him. So I wrote about how Trump spent the whole meeting pouting and upset and whining. And so then I called Trump and I interviewed him about what had actually happened at the meeting for the next Sunday column. And it was so exactly like (laughs) my satire that I had to start with the first sentence saying, this is not the satire. This is the actual interview with Donald Trump. Sorry, it seems like the same column. Yeah, because, you know, he's like a tune. He's like this Batman villain cartoon. So the press keeps trying to figure out how to get their hands around it. Uh, Well, that's a good question, though. How do you see your job these days Um, as opposed to the rest of the press? Yeah, everyone's always mad at me. You know, most columnists come from the left or the right, like Paul Krugman and Frank Bruni and every Tom Friedman. They all have a warm place to go to. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and I do not because I'm People not. People suggest you go to a warm place, <laughs> a very warm place. Yeah, they yeah, tell you exactly. to go to hell, in fact. Yeah, exactly. So I don't write an ideological column. It's more like Shakespearean kind of you know, showing the drama about how power warps people or how they rise Mm. to the occasion. So I think of it more like a watchdog, and that means you're watching both sides. And in this one, it's particularly tense because a lot of people think, as Hillary said at a Hollywood fundraiser recently, that she's the only thing standing between us and the abyss. Mm. So people think that we should give her a free pass and just focus on Trump's sins. But I I just think that when you want to be the most powerful person in the world, you know, you have to be held accountable. I want to ask you just a – well, I'll get to our etiquette questions in a moment. But a question about craft. This is a collection of your columns. You've also talked about stress in producing a column. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Frank Rich once once described it as you dodge a windmill. Like as soon as one – as right. soon as you duck once, another one's coming at you. No, I – being a political columnist is like uh, what the great political cartoonist Pat Oliphant once called stirring up the beast. Standing up to power, yeah. And, you know, it's just hard. It's a little bit like the Godfather. Like, you take one of theirs, they take one of yours. And I'm just <laughs> temperamentally not suited to that. Some people really like that, mixing it up. But the first six months I had it, I, the column. you know, my hair was falling out. My skin was breaking out. Oh, my God. This one Friday night, I came home, and I stopped by Popeye's to get some chicken. <laughs> and I got home, and I put Clearasil all over my face. And then I was eating a chicken leg, and I saw myself in the mirror. <laughs> this said, column is going to be the death of me. Yeah. I said, this is not how William Sapphire spends his Friday <laughs> nights. You know, I wasn't at some of elegant course. dinner party. William Sapphire, the former uh, yeah, venerable Sunday columnist. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I went to my boss. And I said, I really don't think I'm suited for this. And he goes, okay, well, you can go back and be a Metro reporter, (laughs) which I had been for so many years. And I just said, okay, I'll take another shot at it. You're like, I'll try this out. (laughs) Um, Why don't we add to your resume etiquette advice giver? Are you ready for these questions? Yes, I'm ready. This is from Patrick in Pittsburgh. Patrick writes, should someone at a debate viewing party be quiet during the debate or cheer their candidate? It bugs me when State of the Union addresses become exercises in performative applauding, and I want to avoid that, but is that just wishful thinking? (laughs) That's a great question, and I actually have a lot of personal experience in this because I watch the Republican primary debates with my siblings who are very Mm. conservative and who I call my little basket of deplorables. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, and my liberal friends would come over and colleagues. And, you know, it's sort of like if you have Jets and Patriots fans in the same oh, room. You know, if you're all Jets fans, it's okay to yell and scream. But if you have Jets and Patriots, then maybe it's better to be quiet. But the fun of a debate is if you can say snide things all through it. But now you can just do it on your phone on, on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. You know, so and be quiet in the room if it's a mixed crowd. I see. So there you go, Patrick in Pittsburgh. Look at Twitter during the debates. Yeah. Pennsylvania, a battleground state, too. So it must be particularly tense up there. Right, exactly. All right, this next question comes from Julie in D.C., and it's about another thing in Washington that doesn't always work, the Metro. The question says, <laughs> I have a broken leg and ride Metro to work. Even though I'm on crutches with a bright red cast, I don't always find a seat. The people who usually offer me a seat tend to be frail older women. Hmm. And able-bodied people don't respond well to my direct request for a seat. Can you think of an effective way to ask, aside from taking someone out with my crutch? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you could stand in front of them and just guilt trip them. But I think um, I'm very sympathetic to this because I sprained my ankle and have been limping through my whole book tour. And uh, I love the red cast, though. I I think that's really great. But um, you should do what I do when, you know, especially if you're injured and just take an Uber. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's easy for uh, for somebody with a job at the New York Times. What about those well, of us? Only if you only if you're like limping because it's so painful. It's worth it. The shell out for I, an Uber. Yeah, I find I find in in New York uh, more often than not people will shame someone to giving up their yes, seat. Yes, give know? that Hillary Clinton glare that she gave to <laughs> Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> but I'm, right. I, what is going on in D.C. where, the, according to Julie in D.C., she's directly asking able-bodied people, could you please give me your seat? And they're like, no. Yeah. What kind of jerks? Well, you know we're in selfie nation and we're so narcissistic. S- self-obsessed. And also because of ADD, you know? I mean, people may need more stimulation. So maybe if Julie pokes the person while asking yeah. for the seat, maybe <laughs> well, I, that I think there could, be, there could be a class analysis of this. If she has a bright red cast, clearly she has health. Care. Right. Yeah. And there are other people sitting on the metro, probably working double shifts, coming home. There you go. Yeah. And they're like, you know what? This woman's pretty much taken care of. I need to rest because I only have two hours before I have to get my kids to school. Yeah, and they're studying the law of the sea treaty or something. Exactly. You guys, you're yeah. very exactly. magnanimous, you guys. I appreciate <laughs> yes. that. All sides of the issue. All right. Here's something from Jack in Los Angeles. Jack writes, when someone tweets disparaging things about you, how do you gauge whether to engage? Well, I would say don't engage unless it's Donald Trump. Because (laughs) this happened to me last weekend. He tweeted that I was a wacky, crazy, neurotic dope. (laughs) which really hurt my feelings because I thought I was special to him and I thought he would give me a customized nickname like Elizabeth Warren has Pocahontas and Chuck Todd has Sleepy Eyes. And then it's the same stuff he says about every woman journalist. It's just like wacky, crazy, neurotic dope. So I didn't feel special anymore. So did you tweet at him? Yeah, so I tweeted some stuff. And so he got my book up like by 50 places on Amazon. So (laughs) that guy can sell books. Yeah, All right. engage. If he flames you, engage. Maureen Dowd, her new book is called The Year of Voting Dangerously. And if you'd like to hear more of that conversation, including her answer to the question, is what's good for writing columns the same as what's good for democracy? Mm. Head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Yes, and that's also where you can submit your etiquette questions, although you really shouldn't have to ask about giving up your seat for someone Mm. on crutches. Seriously, people. Come on.
And now the guest list in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is comedian Eric Andre. Eric hosts TV's The Eric Andre Show, that title being the only conventional thing about it. (laughs) Each episode begins with Eric destroying his own set, and then he lobs bizarre questions at often unsuspecting interview guests. Charlie Rose, it is not. Here's Mm -hmm. Eric to list a few disastrous interviews that served as, I guess you'd call them, inspirations. Hey, I'm Eric Andre, and these are my favorite train wreck interviews, interviews, interviews. Okay, so my first favorite train wreck interview is Kennedy's interview with Diplo's band, Major Lazer, at Lollapalooza, I believe. Diplo has landed, along with the other two people that make up Major Lazer. That used to be funny. Oh, come on now. She was a VJ on MTV, and she the band off right off the bat. Then she's kind of like trying to joke her way out of it, but insulting them more and more, and digs herself a deeper hole. I have bad hearing because I'm a DJ. I flew to Dubai for $400,000. I played for the prince of who gives a so painful it's so clear like that the band hates her and wants to get out of it and like howard stern's the best interviewer you got to be a conduit between your audience and the guest because your audience doesn't have access to that guest but you do so when you blunder that opportunity it's just like a beautiful train wreck of humanity i've been there before kennedy (laughs) who is the most annoying person that you've worked in the last two years probably you All right, another great train wreck interview is Crispin Glover on David Letterman. I had a theory. I was like, why was all the best train wrecks on Letterman in the 80s and 90s? I just think, like, Dave was in New York. So once the celebrities got to New York, they just partied harder than they did in L.A. And I think Letterman was more late night, and it took him a while to get big names, so he was just having lunatics on. Do you do a lot of uh, television shows? Oh, yes, now because I've been in movies that are big and I'm I'm a movie star, so now I'm here and I've been all across the United States and I feel really good about it. So. He looks insane. He's got weird platform shoes on. His hair looks like a witch's wig. And he is oddly strong. He has, like, crazy person muscle, like Iggy Pop muscle. And he's, like, demonstrating his strength. For some reason. And then they, you, I don't have these. You seem to be distraught. They don't. You seem to be distraught. People try to make me sound a lot weird, and yeah. I'm just, I'm strong, you know? I'm strong. I can arm wrestle. I, do you want to arm no. wrestle? I've been taking, no. you know, I've taken part. These aren't mine. I can, I can, I can kick. Okay. Okay. Hey, I'm, I'm going to go check on the top ten. No, when I watch Crispin Glover's foot almost kick David Letterman in the face, there's a danger there that I appreciate. I actually wish more late night was like this because there's conflict. Conflict is what drives scenes. Something's at risk and you don't know what's going to happen next versus like most late night shows where it's very rehearsed. So these examples are real, unintentional train wreck interviews, but the master who does it intentionally is Sasha Baron Cohen on the Ali G show. 
He knows how to play with people, push them to their limit, then back off, then push them back off, then push them back off and keep the person confused. Like, wow, is this guy actually this idiotic? He interviews Buzz Aldrin and he says... I know this is a sensitive question, but what was it like not being the first man on the moon? Was you ever jealous of Louis Armstrong? He was Neil Armstrong, and no, I was not jealous. He was a very, very qualified person. Yeah. So when you arrived on the moon, was the people who lived there very friendly, or was they scared of you? Sasha Baron Cohen's a genius, and I just, like, did as much research as possible on, like, tactics he used to um, make the guest uncomfortable. Like, in Borat, he never washed that suit. And this season, I was like, I shouldn't wash my suit. I shouldn't even wear deodorant the whole season, so I just reeked. And then I tried to take it a step further, and I grew out my fingernails this season, and didn't brush my hair the whole year. So I did all these like method things to make the person I'm interviewing think that I'm actually deranged. Ah, this next guy raps. Please welcome T.I. On my show, The Eric Andre Show, we strived, we strived, strided, strived, did. We strived to make the um, world's worst talk show. Hey, why don't I just make a rap song that just goes, Why don't you get me on a couple tracks? Because a decent interview is a dime a dozen, and it's kind of just like, okay, that's interesting. But when it's a total train wreck, it's just more rare. I don't know. Don't overthink it, man. Eric Andre, his alternate universe talk show, The Eric Andre Show, is in the middle of its fourth season. It airs Friday nights on Adult Swim. And folks, that's the dinner party download for this week. Thanks to our producer, Jackson Musker, associate producer, Nina Patak, and associate digital producer, Christina Lopez. Our interns are Kathleen McGovern and Danny Carmichael. Jake Gorski engineered. Thanks for spending the hour with us. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to our podcast, where you'll not only get our show, but extra goodies, like a bonus pre-debate mini-show we ran earlier this week. And one more heads up. This Thursday, October 6th, right around happy hour East Coast time, we will be doing our first ever Facebook Live session. Find us at facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload and get ready for a glimpse into our world. See you there. Bon appetit.